Welcome everyone to Be Better Betters. I'm the host, Spanky. Thanks for listening. My guest this week has spent his entire career in the casino industry. From a blackjack and dice dealer to being an executive overseeing the Stardust, which houses the world's largest legal sports betting operation, to president and CEO of the Stratosphere Hotel in Las Vegas. He has done it all. He has taught casino management and regulation in Switzerland and Macau, served on the board of Shuffle Master Gaming. He submitted gaming applications in over 120 jurisdictions around the world and never been declined or withdrawn a license with prejudice. He has published 100 articles on game gambling, gambling regulation, problem gambling, diversity, and casino marketing. Please welcome Richard Schutz. Richard, thanks for coming on. Thank you, Spanky. It's an honor and a pleasure to be visiting with you today. Pleasure's all mine, my friend. So, Richard, let's start off in the beginning. How was life growing up? Well, I grew up in a very small town in Southern California. It was about 12 or 15,000 people. It was quite predominantly Hispanic. It was agricultural. And, um, <laughs> you know, it was... Um, reasonably normal and very small town. Um, my father had been in the Navy during the Second World War in the South Pacific, and so I think everybody of that generation learned dice because the only thing you needed to run a dice game was a blanket and this pair of dice. Um, and, 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 and so I was familiar with gambling. He, he liked his sports bet in that little town. They did it out of the barber shop. And, um, but um, <laughs> that, that was pretty much it, a pretty non-eventful growing up period in, in, in a very small town. I wanted to get away from that all when I finished high school. And so I went to the University of Nevada, Reno. And, and how I made that decision, I have no earthly idea. I, I just did. I applied to some different places. And that seemed like a long way away. It wasn't, but it seemed like it at the time. And that's where I got introduced to uh, gambling. You know, it was a... Uh, at that time, uh, Reno was a pretty vibrant town uh, for gambling and, and known for that. There hadn't been any tribal casinos then. And, uh, and at that, that time, you have to remember Spanky, Nevada was the only state in the nation that had gambling. Uh, this was the early, I went to college in the late 60s and started working at Harris in the early 70s. And um, so, uh, and it was a jamming place. You know, we had a big showroom and in the casinos at that time on swing shift, which is when I dealt, I went to school during the day and I dealt cards and, at night. All of the ladies wore dresses and skirts and all the men wore jackets and ties. And it was a different world, you know, and the entertainers used to kind of mingle through the casino. Uh, and, and it was just, it was, it was in many ways, uh, it was a good job. It paid well for a college job. And, um, and, uh, and it was my interest in gambling. I'd always been interested in it, but I had no plan on making a career of it. You know, it was just a job to facilitate my education. Was that a common job for most uh, Nevada Reno students? You know, because it's just because you're right there in, in the midst of it all? Well, I mean, you had to be 21. Mm -hmm. You know, and a lot of college students aren't. Um, in... Um, I don't know. I mean, it was fairly common. I mean, I mean, it wasn't unusual that you worked in a casino. It was a hard job in the sense that I dealt it. I was a full-time dealer and I would go to work at nine at night and, and deal till five in the morning. Although sometimes as the traffic died down, they'd let you sneak out earlier if they didn't need you anymore and they could manage their payroll numbers in that way. But 
And, but then I went during the school during the day. And when you're going to school between <laughs> like nine to five, and then you're working uh, five to nine dealing cards. Yeah, that'll um, take its toll on you, huh? You know, you know, you know it's, uh, it, it was just a lot of work. And, and, and you never really got a day off because you always worked the weekends in the casinos because that's when there was the greatest volume. School was kind of midweek. So, you know, it was, um, but it was good money. You know, very good money, and and working for Bill Hara, I, I think of the, in in my career, Hara was probably the most important character in the gambling industry, and 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 that is he, he really ran it like a business, uh, and he took good care of his, of his employees. He didn't hire people that knew about gambling because a lot of those had, checkered past, and he so he trained most of his people himself, and and what he did was he cleaned up gambling sufficiently and ran it like a business. And it was that reality that allowed it to be exported. And that's what I think allowed it to then go to, you know, people like New Jersey could look at it as a tool of economic development. And, and then after it went to New Jersey, then the dominoes really started to fall. So where you have, you know, gambling essentially across the United States now, but that had to have its image cleaned up. And I think Harrow's, Hera did a, a great favor to the industry by running a gambling casino like a business and treating the employees as if they were human beings and stuff. So did you interact with Bill Hara personally or? No, not at all. I, I was, uh, you know, I got there at nine at night, usually with a, a book or <laughs> something that I was going to study on my breaks. You'd see him go through the casino and, and that was a lesson in and of itself. He had, and you may recognize this, but he had casino eyes, you know, and, and um, he, you would see him walk by a bank of slot machines and he'd reach up and run his hand across them and then look on his fingers for dust. Um, I was up at a restaurant, the employee lounge was closed one time and they used to have on the, they used to have tax cards, the, the, slot, uh, the um, cash registers didn't calculate the tax. And so you had to look at this little chart to determine how much the tax was in doing a receipt, then you'd bring it into the register. And someone had taped one of those to a podium and he could, if it was good enough to hang up, it was in a frame. Back where we got our tips, there was up this back part of the building and there was a tear in the, in the steps, in the carpet on the steps up there. And, and, and he was just wandering around the building and he noticed that and, and he was on the phone calling someone about that at three in the morning, you know, he, he just, he knew how to run a store, you know, and he just walked through the casino. He'd notice if someone didn't have a, a name tag on and stuff like that. And, and, uh, ridiculous, you know, he was, you know, and, and, and I just knew him by that. I, you know, he, he didn't, I was just one of a, a bunch of dealers, you know, he had a lot of employees. So how does Bill Harrah in that time in Reno compare to other casino operators? Any, anybody else like maybe that could, you could contrast to Bill Harrah of what you heard um, or what you've seen? Well, the other, I mean, at that time, Harrah's was, I mean, it was clean. It was nice. Uh, you wouldn't be fired without reason. Um, there wasn't the, I'm not going to say there wasn't sexual harassment and things like that going on, but it wasn't blatant. You, you really did have some protections as an employee you know, um, and that was definitely not true. Another, you, you know, human resources was 
lacking in the gambling industry for a long time. And I think Harris was one that really introduced human resources. I, <laughs> I remember I, kind of a funny story, and, and this is just about the Harris organization. I had left to go to graduate school, and then uh, when I came back from graduate school, I started working at Harris again. And so I, after six months or something like that, you have to take an evaluation. And it said, make your comments. And I said, I have no comments. And then they came back and she said, you have to make comments. And, and, and I said, okay. And I said, in, in the five years that I've been gone from Harris, I've seen just a material depreciation in the customer service levels and the quality of management, all that. And, and then I went back to my game. I didn't think much of it the next night. It, they had a casino manager there and someone, an executive there and about three other people. Okay. You know, why did you write this and, and, and wow. stuff? And in, in a lot of organizations, that would have been the last thing you did there. They just say, you know, get your butt off the property, but you know, Harris did care. And, and it's kind of interesting. I think it's interesting that that brand's being brought back by right now. And, and that is a, it'll be interesting to see how Harris advances now that they purchase Caesars. You know. So, so Richard, you know, you're getting your degree now and, and, and you're just trying to do this just to be able to make some money on the side. When did you say, okay, after you get your degree and you said you're going for your graduate degree, when did you decide to go back into the casino business? And when did you say, Hey, listen, this is probably going to be my career. Well, I went to the University of Utah to work on my, I, I did my master's work at Nevada and then I went to the University of Utah to work on my PhD and, and, um, and, and while I was, I had done my qualifying exams and, and um, field exams and was done with all that and I was working on my dissertation and I wanted to write on something so I, I decided to write on gambling, um, the regulation of gambling uh, and I looked at the Nevada history and it was kind of funny how I stumbled onto that but and I just looked at the period from 1945 to 1966. This was in the 70s when I was doing this. And I got interested in it, but I wanted to be a college professor. And, and then I started teaching at a place called Weber State College. And um, I mean, one of the first things I understood was that it paid about half as much as being a dice dealer did. <laughs> <laughs> that was troubling. And, and the other things in academia, the politics was just vicious. And I always have made the joke that the politics were so vicious because the stakes were so low, you know? And um, so I just decided, I went through some personal issues at that time in a relationship and decided to, to kind of leave the area. And I just went back to Nevada and I thought, well, I'm going to try this, this industry. I started dealing again. And then I thought, you know, I'm just going to give this a whirl. <laughs> so um, that's how it happened. And I was up in Reno and kind of taking it easy a little bit. I was skiing during the day become a ski bum at Lake Tahoe and I was dealing dice at night for a while. And, uh, and, and that was kind of how I was living. I kept my money in my left pocket. It's probably as happy as I ever could be. And, um, but that's amazing, Richard, because you know, you have a PhD right now. You're <laughs> looking, you know, so you have a PhD and you're dealing dice. Um, you well, know, I didn't finish my PhD because I got oh. into a, a, a bit of a pissing contest with my, uh, committee and, and, um, through a bit of a fit, um, I think strategically trying to write a topic on at the University of Utah on gambling wasn't wise. But but you know I was five years, five and a half years in the program, and I spent two years working on my dissertation as well. But I enjoyed. It. I mean, I was living in, I was dealing dice at night and um, and skiing at, at Squaw Valley during the day, and there are worse lifestyles. You know? Absolutely. And and when I was there, 
I was contacted by an, uh, an executive that had been with the Wynn organization in Las Vegas, and they said that they were interested in me. And what they were interested in me was for two reasons. It seemed like in the industry, you either had people that had gotten there through their education or what, you know, or they had gotten there by working up through the ranks. And, and they found it unusual that someone had my educational credentials and had also spent a number of years on a casino floor. Yeah. And, and one of the things that I will always maintain, and, and you might get this, but I use that casino floor and learning about the culture of gambling and what gambling's about. That was as valuable to me as any part of the education. And I'm not mm. suggesting the education was not important, but they were equally important. You, you, you know, but absolutely. Anyway, I, I can't disagree because most executives don't have that on the floor education. Let's just, let's just call a spade a spade. You know, you're, you're one of the very few, if not one of the, you know, not too many guys have, have, gone through that right now yeah i mean most a lot of executives today the only thing they know about uh, casino floors oftentimes they walk across it to get to a restaurant or their office yeah. <laughs> and uh, i mean and, and it was kind of fun later in vegas i used to push in on a dice game you know and and, and, and as when a ceo pushes in on a dice game and starts dealing the game that kind of freaks people out <laughs> 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 you know they weren't used to seeing that um but anyway so i went i went and started working and I took the job. I mean, I flew down for my interview. I had one suit. It didn't fit. Um, I rode in a limousine. I got to stay in a suite. You know, I was, I mean, it was just, it was just this culture shock. Two weeks later, I was living there. And about eight days after that, I was on a private jet to Atlantic City. And during that same trip, I took a, one of Mr. Wynn's Sikorsky helicopters to New York. <laughs> I mean, it was wow. just—I mean, it was just a, a cultural shock thing, and and I was as green as I I could be. Now, the chief financial officer at the at the uh, Golden Nugget at that time—it was Mr. Went on the Golden Nugget at that time. Uh, this was in the '80s, and um, he took me under his wing and and mentored me and 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 was very protective. And and he, he gave me three rules. He, he said, if we Go into a meeting. Um, if he said, if he leaned forward on the conference table, that I was to lean forward on the conference table, and if he disengaged from the conference table and leaned back, I was to lean back. And and, and those are body language symbols that were part of negotiating. And he just wanted to make sure I mimicked that, so I didn't. We weren't sending off bad signals. He said also on, on the loan documents and stuff, and we were doing. I mean, this was, you know. Our, the investment bank was uh, Drexel Burnham, Michael Milk, and, and, and that whole generation. And, and, and people were using a lot of junk at that time, uh, high yield bonds. And um, he said, um, your job is to make sure the math is always right. And if it's not, you're fired. <laughs> and, and, and he said, and you also have to carry the documents, right? These two big document carriers, you know, that you used to see the accountants having. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I lugged those around everywhere. And the third thing he says is, if we're in a meeting and you open your mouth, you're going to be fired. And that may sound like a funny thing to tell somebody, but that made it so I could sit into some interesting meetings and not have to be terrified that I was going to be asked something. And to be able to be a fly on the wall mm. without having 
to be in panic about, you know, just not, yeah, I was green, you know? Yeah. And, and so I just had that opportunity. Um, That's, you know, the first great. thing that you said there, Richard, was amazing. You know, if I lean forward, you lean forward, so that we'll be in unison and, you know, it, you know, it looks like, you know, we're, we're coming in together as a team. Um, and if I lean back, you lean back, you know, that's like a, you know, you saying the chief financial officer, these are pretty, you know, tips that you just don't really hear about. So that's like something that I find fascinating. I, you know, it's, it sounds like so basic, but at the same time, it's so uh, sometimes the easiest things to learn are the most important. So that, that's awesome. I love that. Yeah, I was, um, I was really, I was really, really lucky, really lucky, you know. I mean, you know, normally, it's, it's, and I'm sure it's true of you too, you learn things by screwing it up. <laughs> you know, yeah, absolutely. And maybe more, you know. So um, what is your position now at, at the Golden Nugget? And, and how did you, did, you, did you interact with Steve Wynn himself at all, or was it just the CFO? Or? I would be in meetings with him. I would, I would hang with the CFO at the time. Um, I flew with Mr. Wynn and, and the CFO to New York one time, but it was just, we were both catching the same helicopter. We had these great Sikorsky helicopters that were this black enamel with the big golden nugget logo on them. That was very cool. Um, I think I was outside an office office one time when he was yelling at my boss that he should fire me. And I don't remember what that was about, um, <laughs> but you know, no, it's, I, you know, I was a fly on the wall to Mr. Wynn, but that, that, that was again, you know, I was, um, you know, I got to witness how, how that happened, you know, um, but it was crazy too. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, it, it was, uh, it was a lot of work and I really did not want to be an analyst in the industry, you know, um, because well, I was a casino guy <laughs> yeah. you know? and, and, uh, I was a casino guy at my heart and, and, and I'm still a casino guy at heart. What was your title at the Golden Oak? What was your like day-to-day -day roles? Well, they made up a title. They didn't know what to call me. I guess uh, some press, uh, business cards that they gave me, and it said Clyde's boy. And Clyde Turner was the chief executive director and chief financial officer. <laughs> and I was just his boy. I mean, you know. And, and the other thing is, is I was always moving my offices around because I never knew where I was going to be the next day. And and so they gave me those notepads that they often put on people's desks, but it said from the box of Richard shoes, cause that, you know, these added machines and, and, and different things I needed. And I'd run around in the box cause I didn't know if we'd be on a plane or if we'd be in Atlanta. I didn't know what we were doing, you know? So I really didn't have a title and, and, and Clyde was not interested in anybody knowing what I was doing. You know, I think Clyde had some concerns about certain aspects of the of the operation, especially in the casino area. And he didn't, you know, he was a finance guy and he wanted someone that could talk to him about what was going on on the casino floor. And that's a perception that's hard to gather when you're a finance guy unless you have an interpreter. And I was his interpreter. Beautiful. Beautiful. So how, um, how long so did you last there? there? Yeah. I left there, uh, the chief financial, the, of the property there, uh, Suma owned the Frontier Hotel and Casino. It was one of the number of, Suma was the Howard Hughes people, and they owned the Frontier, and he had, was offered the presidency of that, and he says, um, so he came to me and he says, I'm going to accept the offer of the president, I'd like you to be my marketing guy. 
And I said, I've never been a marketing guy. And the, and the guy, and then we used to go to lunch all the time. And, and so I said, I've never been a marketing guy. Um, and, and, and he said, well, I, I just like the way you think, you know, and he says, and so I went and did that. And, and there again, so I, I, I left the win organization and which I thought was overly chaotic for my taste and ended up at the Howard Hughes Corporation, which was just the opposite, you know, very stable. And we were just a kind of an unimportant niche there. And, um, and I worked with a group of people I liked and um, I, I ended up being the vice president of marketing. And, uh, and then the executive vice president of casino operations passed away and so I just took that wore that hat too and it was really a kind of a nice experience in the casino business because I was responsible on a strip casino for both the gaming operations and also the marketing and, and, and it's oftentimes those two areas didn't disconnect <laughs> mm-hmm. you know and, um, and and that was a great experience and, and then we sold that property we put in a book there. That was my first booking experience. Lenny Del Genio was our keynote writer and we decided we we're going to put it, Lenny talked us into putting in a book. So we did. And that's when I started meeting people, you know, we, um, I had no idea about booking other than how to make a $20 <laughs> parlay on the, <laughs> you, you, you yeah. know, siding over for a, <laughs> for a Sunday football game. You know, yeah, yeah. You, you know, that's what I knew about booking and, and we were going to run a book and, the guy we were going to run it was going to run it was Lenny Del Genio and, and he was a Kino manager. So, you know, I mean, this was the blind, they did the blind. And, and um, so we put it in and, and started booking action. And it, this was just learning by doing, you know, and, and, and I started to get a little bit nervous uh, about our depth of our talent. So I hired a guy by the name of Sonny Reasoner, uh, who had been uh, the hole in the wall book kind of a legendary book in Las Vegas. And, uh, and so I, I had another person I could learn from. And, and uh, so, so that, you know, I, I learned that business there. And then um, we did that for four years and then we sold that property was sold because the heirs of the, the used heirs didn't want to be licensed and the gaming control boards kind of was, was playing that hand. And so they sold the property it was, I think it was one of the last of the, uh, and we had Siegfried and Roy there. It was a, it was a great property and it was a great experience and it gave me real good strip experience, Las Vegas strip experience. And so then the Boyds had bought the Stardust, bought the bonds on the Stardust and they had put a couple of their guys in to, in to run it. And, and they, they just had local joints, you know, at that time they had Sam's town and they would deal real low limits. I mean, they were, it was a great model, but it wasn't a model that worked on the strip. And so I was hired myself and another guy were hired and we went into that understanding that that property had um, issues with its ownership and its management and the gaming control board had asked them to leave. And, um, and, and, and John Miner and myself were brought in and that was really an experience because that had been a, I don't want to impinge anybody's, reputation, but it had been alleged that the people that left had been associated with organized crime in some way, shape or form. Mm-hmm. And um, it's interesting to be a college educated person and go into a joint that had been run kind of by the mob, possibly. And, and, and you find that, that 
that permeates the whole organization. You know, I was only comfortable talking to the president. That was it, you know, because you just didn't know who was working for who. And we, we had a lot of funny issues there, like the bartender was running women and, you know, running girls, as we said at the time. And just every little scam in the world was going on there. And it was like after a year, I think we went from feeling that we had 25 independent businesses there to about 17 independent businesses. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we saw that as progress. And, uh, <laughs> and that's funny. And we also had a book there. And, 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 you know, we had this, you know, they told me, well, you're going to be in charge of Scott. And, and, and to, the, to the boys, I think, thought Scott was a problem, Scott Shetler. And uh, so, I, you know, and, and, and the boys worked like, they had been a local store and it had been a Western themed store and stuff like that. They would wear cowboy clothes and Western attire and stuff like that. And, and I had come from a strip property and was wearing, you know, cufflinks and dark suits. And, all that. <laughs> and I, I remember the first time going down to the book, you know, <laughs> to meet Scott and Scott looked like me, like, I mean, it, like I was the plague. And, and he just, <laughs> I remember that to this day, it was like, Okay, you're going to be the next idiot that tries to manage me, and and by the way, you're going to lose. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Didn't say anything, but he gave me that look. Yeah. And and so I just kept showing up and asking questions and and this and that and 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 I think probably one of the most. I mean, when you get to my age, and 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 you get this, thank you. It's, it's, you know. The main thing, if you've accomplished anything in your career, the main thing you've accomplished is having develop some wonderful friends, you know, and, um, and people that you respect. And I, I probably have more respect for Scott Shetler than anybody in the planet. And, and, and it was just a joy to work for him, you know, <laughs> and, um, and I'll tell you, you'll find softer spots in a brickyard. And, uh, <laughs> but we ended up with a very good, good relationship. He was, um, you know, he wasn't liked too much by the board, the game and control board. And, 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 and that was part, he, he wasn't real smooth <laughs> with people. He was a very direct communicator and he didn't, uh, you know, he wasn't willing to, to I don't know, he, he just wanted to take care of business and didn't like stupid questions and stuff. Um, who, who, you know, because the Stardust, obviously it's legendary and, and the Stardust sports book, uh, you know, when did, when was the decision made to say, okay, we're going to be the hub here. We're going to be the go-to joint. Um, when did that decision get made? Because again, was, was, was Scott the driving force? When did Roxy come in? When did you, you know, were you uh, just watching it? From a I can get the, the dates right. But, but I mean, when the, when the, the quote, the alleged mob guys, you, you, you know, those guys knew how to run a joint. <laughs> mm -hmm. I mean, you can, I mean, they were crummy accountants, apparently. <laughs> you know, they, yeah. they, had, they had a tendency to get the, the, the revenue, taxable revenues confused, apparently. <laughs> you know, and certain transactions maybe weren't recorded as appropriately as they should have been. But, but you know, they knew how to run a joint. And, mm -hmm. and the mob knew how to run a joint because they've been running joints for about 50 or 60 years. Of course, yes. <laughs> you know, and, and a lot of people miss that point you know um the, the, these guys really knew and they ran them from the floor you know and, and they knew how to take care of customers and all that so so that whole thing was going scott became a part of that when when the boys took over the boys were a little bit 
the, the boys were not comfortable on the strip at that time. You know, they didn't like high table limits. I remember I wanted to raise up the, te- the, the table limits real quickly because the customers that we were bringing with us from the frontier were used to, at that time, 2,000 limits. And the boys had $500 limits, which was silly on the strip. And because um, you're just going to run off a lot of good business. And, and they'd say funny things. I'd say, I want to raise up the limits. And, they, and they'd say, well, we can't do that. And I said, what do you mean you can't do that? And they go, well, we don't want a guy to build a lumber yard out of a toothpick. And, and it was like, it was like, I just stare at him. I was like, really? <laughs> well, I don't get that. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I was, I had been trained a lot. And, and, and just having those silly expressions as management tools, I thought was stupid. And, and, and so, anyway. So were yeah. the Boyds more conservative than any other casino operator that you've seen? Like, is that on just... The strip. Yeah, at that on- time, on the Strip, yeah. Uh-huh. And, they, and they also had... had one of the reasons was we had we had really embraced at Boyd Group. I mean, at the uh, Suma Howard Hughes Corp technology, you know, like tracking systems and stuff like that. And and the Boyds knew that they were not good at that, and that's one of the reasons um, I had been very involved in the early development of the early tracking systems. And so that's why another reason they wanted us to help them leap into the the age of technology and player tracking and stuff like that. Now, when you say track, what were they scared of? Was it blackjack? Was it guys, you know, just doing, you know, cheating? Or what, what, everything. What? Everything. Everything. Like, can you just, can you just go down a list of, of what? Oh, it, you know, they didn't want to put, they, they didn't want a lot of uh, volatility in their holds, you, you know, and, you, and you, obviously you do that by offering smaller, you, you know, you take away the variance when you go to with lower limits and, and they just wanted to run a nice, friendly joint and, and, and stuff like that. They didn't want to pay a lot for their customers. You know, they, they were kind of uncomfortable paying airfares and, you know, taking pay people to Alaska on fishing trips and Super Bowls and stuff like that. That was just a whole different model to them, you know. And I'm not, I mean, look, they had, you know, Sam Boyd and Bill Boyd had done an amazing job with that local market. When they got into the strip, they just got there was a learning curve that they needed to experience and, and, and I helped drag them along that learning mm-hmm. curve for a couple of years, you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and it was Scotty, you know, Scott, they kind of left Scotty alone. I, I don't, I think he scared them off and stuff. Um, but he and I hit it off. And, 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 and one of my roles there for Scott was to stay between he and the Boyd group and stay between he and the gaming control board. There, there are some field agents that just didn't like Scott for, for reasons that did not make sense to me. But, but I also understand that, you know, Scott had missed a lot of lectures at charm school. You know. <laughs> so, all right. So, so th- what year are we talking about now? Are, you know, 80, mid, mid, mid to late eighties in here. Yeah. Now, yeah. the, when the Stardust, when when did the Stardust? What year what, were you when you got there? Was it already as the top sports book or one of the top sports books? It was absolutely had a very good reputation for a sports book. It was it was struggling to identify itself. Yeah, uh, a, a lot of people were. When you start taking the table limit from the casino changes, that changes your sports book. And one of the points that I really understood at the Stardust was that a the model I learned was where your sports book is integrated into the casino. 
And what that means is two things is one, we looked at that book as a revenue source. Okay. As a revenue generating department, but we also looked at it as a, as a um, marketing tool because that book drove phenomenal traffic. But if you're playing higher end sports, you don't want lower end table games necessarily, you know, and, and um, so that's what we needed to kind of try and get consistent. We wanted it to be as we wanted to keep the book as it was and to have um, but a, a little higher end table game and slot and higher levels of customer service and start using comps and special events and, and bigger limits. You know, and I, I've always always been an advocate for bigger limits. I, I have not been afraid of the games like a lot of people on the strip and in gambling seem to be afraid of the, of the of higher limits. That never bothered me. You know, I always thought I understood the games enough. That, that's, inter that's interesting that you said that sports book, you want to integrate it into the casino because some people might view the sports book as like just an amenity. It's not an earner. It might be even, you know, potentially it, it's okay. If you make a little, as long as you don't you know, lose a lot, um, you guys saw it a little bit differently. You, it was a big earn for you guys. Yeah. Well, I was, like I said, we saw it two ways. One, we saw it as a revenue producing department, but we also saw it as a valuable marketing tool because you know, that North interest on the Stardust book, there were some doors there and we put some monitors there and there were about 400,000 clicks on those monitors a month there. You know, it just drove a lot of traffic and, and, and that was important. I've told the story a number of times outside the building there. Um, there was um, 11 pay phones on the wall and, and, and those 11 pay phones, cause you didn't have, smartphones then and you couldn't have a phone in front of the book because of wire act and other issues and so those 11 pay phones were the highest producing revenue pay phones in the world in the united states and wow you know, oh man and i used to stand out there you know we made the line there but you know people when people landed in in um in in vegas you know and you have to remember then I mean, and this is, you'll laugh at this, is how, how you made line decisions, you know. You know, when you're behind that counter, you know, do we move the line? And, you know, when you feel like you're losing control of something, but you hate to run over a seven or a three or, you know, mm -hmm. something like that. We, you know, our volumes and our activity changed, you know, because people arrived on airplanes. And, like, on a, on a, we knew that on a Thursday night and a Friday day that people would be coming from New York and Chicago and stuff like that. And we incorporated that, that understanding into to any line shifts, you know, it's like, you, you know, if it was a West coast team playing the New York giants or Chicago bears or something, we'd get early money that may be West coast money. But then when the plane started landing, it'd start going the other way, you know? Mm -hmm. so, so, um, but you know, when those people make bets and stuff, they come to Vegas to gamble and we wanted them to have a lot of opportunities to gamble because it wasn't like that. I mean, you bet on a side, you know, and you, and you may bet the over, we didn't have in-game betting or any of that stuff. I mean, it, Christ, it, you know, we just barely got to offering halves and stuff like that. So we wanted them to be able to do something else with their time. And we thought Bakra and slots and blackjack would be a great alternative, but those all needed to be integrated so that they, 
were consistent with who you were trying to market to. Beautiful. Yeah, that's just it's fascinating just to hear from the inside on how the on how that book was was run and how you guys brought in you know people all over the country. Yeah, they show up there, and, and I'll tell you, I mean, we had some funny funny little niche markets, like every executive of every casino on the Strip, you know, I mean, you know, I mean, they, cause they, and, and I'll tell you why, they knew they could get down, you know, yeah. I mean, you know, they didn't, you know, I, I laugh at Twitter, you'll see these guys requesting a, you know, a 2000 or a $3,000 bet on the side, and they get a message back. From the operator, it will take four dollars and eighty cents or something. Yeah, exactly. It's unbelievable. So, what kind of limit? Like, you know, just just to put things into context and perspective, what limits did you guys like deal on on a college football or NFL? You, back it, then? you know, I I can't remember those numbers. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's forty years ago. Yeah. But but let me tell you what we did. I mean, we started slow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When we threw a number up, we had an auction. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, the lottery is the whole thing. Yeah, the lottery, and, and, and you know, it, I mean, we take kind of small bets and, and give a because we made the line, yeah. And, uh, and and that process was, was, you know, we were using Roxy and we were using some other people. And, and another thing that was important to understand, Spanky, is we had people that had been standing behind the counter for 10 years and never underestimate that as an important element in your book. And um, so we get we had a, a lot of different opinions, you, you know, that, that we'd get, and then we'd open up the lottery, and 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 this was a Scott thing, and it was just hilarious at times. <laughs> Scott would throw people out, and <laughs> they'd, they'd come to my office. Scott threw me out of the lottery and won't let me come back for a week. And can you talk to him about that? <laughs> conversations? You know, that people were crowded. I mean, just all the nonsense, but. So, so that would start started, but we, we took big limits, you know, and we, uh, we also dealt the faces and I meant faces that we knew, you know, mm-hmm. um, you, you know, that would knew what going to be back tomorrow and knew that they were going to be back next year and, and, and on and on and on. And we also, and, and I was remembering, I ran the casino at this time. I just didn't oversee the book. And so if we had a, a guy that just was a good blackjack player that we maybe beat out of four or 500,000 a year or even two or 300,000 a year and had been doing it for a number of years. And he wanted to get, you know, 50,000 down on LSU for some reason. And, you know, there's just no way we could even, you know, risk manage that. I approved those bets, you know, <laughs> because I had no problem with money being handed out by the book and taken over to a dice game or taken over to a Baccarat. Of course. And over to, you know, I was responsible for the casino to make money and I didn't care where that money was. And one of the things that we, I learned about the book is, you know, we, we weren't terrified by winners because there's nothing like having a guy in a casino who has just won a bet and has money in his pocket. Because when you have a guy that's just won a bet, he's kind of euphoric, he thinks he's smart, and he's got money. And that's exactly what you want in a casino. And, and you know, you didn't want to give him an experience, an excuse to live, leave. And so, you know, we had nice restaurants, we had a nice show, we had um, other forms of gambling. Um, you know, and we were open for the long run. We also 
were willing to hold low, you know, have a whole, uh, just because of that marketing thing. And, and we also just wanted people to know if you wanted to get down, you could get down with us. So, so to answer your question, we dealt bigger limits up to and including briefcases <laughs> if I approved. Does that wow. make sense? No, absolutely not. Now, did Scotty Shetler ever give you pushback saying, you know, or, or he always welcomed whatever. If, if, you, if you gave approval, did, did you guys ever push back on certain certain things? or? I can't remember Scotty and I ever disagreeing on anything. You know, we talk it over and mm -hmm. – and, it, and we, we resolve it. And it wasn't like, well, no, I, look, I'm your boss or, you know, or look, I'm going to get pissed off and leave. It was never like that, you know. Um, I thought we worked together quite well. And, and he was, he appreciated me, I, I think. In his little book he wrote, you know, he talked about how I kind of protected him from details of the business that he didn't like to deal with. He just wanted to run a book. He didn't want to have to deal with these gaming control board guys. And he didn't want to have to deal with these corporate accountants and these corporate guys that, that had a strong opinions and no, no understanding, you know? Absolutely. You mentioned Richard, that you said you dealt to faces. I love that line. Um, you know, you, you had, you, you had, there was a, a, a personal a relationship with your customers. Um, how well, if I a, how, go ahead. If I, if I had a guy that, that I was beating out of a hundred thousand year or more, or, or, you know, was giving me good action. I didn't want to give him an excuse to leave the building, mm -hmm. <laughs> you yeah. know? And, and so if he went down there and said, I, I want 4,000 or I want 5,000 on, you know, some small college or some off, you know, some, you know, just something that I didn't want him to say, well, I'll go, I, I'm going to get in a cab and shop this all over town until I can get my 5,000 down. I wanted him one be happy with me and not leave the building and, and and not waste his time having to go look for other places because he could end up at the Hilton or he could, could end up someplace else and they might see him as a good player and their host cut into him and show him a suite and I've lost that customer you know I wasn't interested in losing that customer so I didn't ever want to give a customer an excuse to leave the the building you know beautiful I love it um, so, you know, this is just fascinating stuff, you know, just seeing it from the inside of, of running a casino. Let's, you know, with respect to, let's just say, you know, card counters or sharp betters, you know, did you ever throw a guy out of a casino? Did you ever say, I just can't take your action? Uh, no, um, not, not for that reason. I, in my, and I spent, when I was working on my master's, I didn't finish it on this because uh, I, I didn't have the tools to do it. I, I started a thesis. I was studying under Bill Edington out of the University of Nevada, Reno on my master's and started a, trying to learn as much as I could about card counting systems because I wanted to do a master's thesis on it. And um, so, so I felt comfortable with card counting systems. And, and, and working in a pit, I found out that you had a lot of people that acted like they knew card counting systems and, and, and didn't. You, you know, there's this bullshit that you have to listen to a floorman. I mean, you'd walk up to the game and, you know, I'd say, what's going on here? And he goes, oh, the guy, yeah, the guy's in, you know, 2000 out eight. Uh, and then he'd say, he's been here about 15 minutes. And, and then the guy would say something like, he's not counting. I ran him down. And it's like, you, you, know, <laughs> you might want to watch him for more than 15 minutes, you know, you, yeah. you know. 
they would just say things that were inconsistent. I'd oftentimes invite these experts up to my office and hand them a deck and ask them to, you know, to deal the cards out on the desk and, and give me the running count. And, and that embarrassed a lot of guys, you know. <laughs> you know the other thing was, is, um, you know, Jack Binion once said, and I stole this from him, that he would send buses to Los Angeles to bring card counters to Las Vegas. And, and what he meant by that is there were a ton of people in Las Vegas like that had, you know, quantitative backgrounds, be it in engineering or math or something like that. And, and they would get a hold of a book like Thorpe's book or one of those books, and they'd, and they'd read it and look at the tables and maybe spend a night or two with it. And that was perfect. And I might be giving up a little edge to that guy versus the normal guy, you know, just the stiff off the street that's going to do all kinds of mysterious things. Um, but I've still got the best of it. And I just wanted to keep the best of it. And, and, and what I learned studying card counting was it's pretty hard for a player to get the best of it. You have to be good. You have to be good a lot. You have to be well-financed and you have to be right just about all the time. And, 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 and there are people that can do that, but there, for every one of those that can do that, there's 99 that have a little bit of knowledge and a little bit of knowledge can be a great thing as a marketing tool, but it's not going to cost you any money. You know, you rather than say a 3% whole, uh, edge per hand, you, you might be looking at a point. Well, that's still, I can pay the bills with that money, you know? So the only person I did not allow to play on my blackjack games was uh, Stewie Unger, you, mm. you know, because I just thought he was smarter than even most computers are today. He was, <laughs> he was brilliant, you know? I mean, I mean, not, not in all aspects of his life, obviously, but, but in that, he was a good player at the Stardust book too. He fired hard at baseball. Stewie was of the attitude that if he didn't get about 90% of his net worth in action every day, it was a bad day. But, <laughs> but I didn't deal with him. I, and I just told him, I said, look, you want to shoot dice or play poker, hustle, pinochle. Yeah, I used to, not pinochle, but uh, Jen, he used to rent a poker table from time to time to play Jen against a guy and we'd give him a dealer and he just flat, he just mutilated these guys. He was just so much smarter than they were. I mean, it wasn't even in the same, in the same planet. But now that's not to say I wouldn't take countermeasures. You know, that, I, I, you know, if I started worrying about something or if something didn't make sense to me, or if I had a floorman that suggested that this guy was following the count, you know, I might start shortening up the deck. And one of the things I used to love to do is just go talk to him. Mm. Just go over there and be chatty Kathy. And, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. I mean, if you ever tried to count, you um, and you've got some jabbering pit boss talking to your executive, you know, where are you from? How you going? How's your room? You need anything? You know, they, yeah. you could kind of, that, that'll slow down a counter. It's, it's funny, they when they started moving in with the uh, card counting computers, you know, we were talking about, I was in a meeting with the Howard Hughes, and we had seven casinos at that time, and all the gambling guys were together, and someone came up with, you know, it was computer-driven. We thought, well, we could we could just put an electromagnet magnet underneath the game, and, and and if we thought someone was counting, we'd just hit that electromagnet and blow the computer chip, you know. And, uh, <laughs> and then I, we thought, well, maybe we'll do that, and then, and then we discovered that that would also stop people's pacemakers. <laughs> <laughs> That's not good. We didn't do that, but 
But, you know, look, I'm sure card counters beat me for money, you, you, you know, and stuff like that. But, you, you know, there's some losses on, on making – it's like I said, I, you, you know, I, I agreed with Jack Binion. Send me all those card counters out of L.A. that know a little bit, and, and, and they're going to – and I'll have, a, I'll have a good bottom line. That's what I believe. Love it. Great point. Great line. Um, so, okay. So, so the Stardust now, you, after the Stardust, Richard, you, you, you went to, you know, how did you get the stratosphere and, and to be the CEO, so I, CEO, that's, that's huge. I went to, and I joined Sheldon Adelson. Yeah. And I just got tired of the Stardust. I, um, you know, I just, I, just didn't enjoy working there as much as it wasn't as much fun as it should have been, you know, and, um, and, and I was kind of butting up against their attitudes and philosophies a lot. And I, I just thought this is, this isn't worth it, you know? Um, and so I, I, I then left and joined the Sands who, which was owned by Sheldon Adelson. And, and that was really short lived. That, that just seemed crazy to me. So I left really shortly thereafter. And, and I went, there's a guy named Lyle Berman that was starting a company in Minneapolis called Grand Casinos. And so I interviewed with them and, and went to work for them. And that became a, uh, you know, it became one of the fastest growing small companies in America. Forbes had us at the, one of the best managed small companies, one of the best managed small companies in America. And, uh, you know, we did, uh, started in the tribal space and then ended up doing, um, in Mississippi, building casinos in Mississippi, and uh, our tribals were in Minnesota and Louisiana. We ended up with like seven casinos, and then Lyle, I guess, there's found met Bob Stupak, and um, so uh, he wanted to, uh, you know, Stupak was running out of money with the Stratosphere project, and so we we joined in, and that was a conflict between. Lyle and myself, Lyle Berman and myself, and, and, and I thought that I had worked from the day the company was taken public to build the brand of that company, and I was quite proud of that. I was the vice president of corporate marketing, and I thought Bob Stupak, while he's an entertaining person, um, was not consistent with our brand, you, you know. Um, and, and so I chose to cash out my stock options and bought a house on Lake Minnetonka and, and that was about it. Um, and then the stratosphere continued on and they, it opened and I had written a number of memos to Lyle as to why I thought the stratosphere wouldn't work and some of the mistakes he'd made. And so I just got a call from him one day and they said, well, actually his niece called because Lyle was annoyed with me and he said, why don't you go out and look at the stratosphere? And so I just got on a plane like I was a normal customer and I went out there and stayed in the hotel. I checked in, I paid for everything myself and, you know, booked through the 800 number and ate in all the restaurants and played blackjack and stuff and went and drank where the dealers drank and went back to Minneapolis. And so Lyle called me and said, what do you think? And I told him what I thought, you know, and it wasn't complimentary. And so would you, and he said, would you run a, for 90 days while I try and find a new president. I said, sure. And I, I ended up being there just one year exactly. And, and that was an interesting experience because I lived in the property. Um, my first um, 
press conferences the day I started, I had an eight week marketing program, an eight week marketing turnaround program. And um, the, um, they said, why eight weeks? And I said, I only have eight weeks of cash left. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I had nine weeks of cash left. I've had a nine week marketing turnaround program. But anyway, it was an interesting experience there. And, and then I hung out there and I ended up, um, went down to complain to the mayor about the crime in the neighborhood. And, and that was a funny story because we ended up getting married um, later. And started <laughs> a whole different chapter that was from Mayor Jones, Jen Jones, who's still a dear friend. We're no longer married, but he's still a dear friend. But, but going back, I want to go back to one point. Yeah. When, when you were talking about how we priced our product at the Stardust. Mm -hmm. um, we collected data every second we were in that building in that book, you know, and we, we would get data from talking to the staff in there. We would get data from having Roxy and some other people providing us with, with their opinions and their thoughts. We would pay attention to how the, where the money was coming from. We, we, you know, it's like I said, we would pay attention to what the airline schedules were, you know, against certain things. And, 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 and that's what a book is. You collect data continuously, you know, to make those work correctly, I, I think. And I didn't mean to jump from um, the stratosphere to, to, uh, to that, but I just think that's an important point to understand, you know. Um, well, no, that's that's an interesting segue. Let's talk about you know sports betting today. What what is missing, in your opinion, in, in the regulated uh, sports betting landscape today? Well, you, you you know it's it's not customer driven. It seems to me as as much as you know, it's like here's our technology and here's our marketing model, and and if you like it. You know, and they're starting to copy each other. It reminds me of the old bus programs in Atlantic City when I worked for Mr. Winna. You know, there were nine properties lined up in a row there along the boardwalk, and everyone had a bus program, and one would give $25 worth of hard coin to play slots, and then the store next door would offer $27.50 of hard coin to play slots, and all the bus customers would go to that store. I mean, uh -huh. and, and, and that went on for... <laughs> 20 years, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, 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 and it ate up all the margin. Um, and, and I see that in sports betting. Um, what, I, what I say, let, let me take it apart a little bit, Spanky. The, the regulators, first of all, gaming regulators are unusual. And it's one of the few industries that gets people to regulate it that don't understand it. Okay. I mean, I was extraordinary. When I became a regulator in California and when I became a regulator in a foreign country, it was rare that I had, you know, I'd been a CEO and stuff like that, you know, I mean, yeah. and, th and that's rare. Most of your regulators have never worked in gambling. I, I think that's a real problem. And, it, and, and you didn't see that in other industries. How would you like to be going in for a surgery tomorrow and go, yeah, the guy that did the internal controls for this operation, he's never operated. On anybody yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but, you know, he asked the industry what they thought would be best. And so he's doing that or he copied the controls from the state next door. Um, and, and, it, and, and that's always been a problem with regulation, which I am very critical of. And, and, and it really pisses regulators off when I have this discussion. 
because just because but i think it's very honest and i became a regulator and continued to talk this way and, and i thought it might make have more credibility if i could say we regulators you know to use that pronoun uh, but they didn't want to hear about it you know and, and um, i would encourage people in california like i encourage some of the regulators there on the commission i said call a casino and go see if you can hang for eight hours with their swing shift boss you know just follow him around and understand what it's like in a casino i mean i mean just a little detail when you work in a casino there are mistakes made all the time and there are mistakes made all the time because you want to keep the game going you know this is a time and motion business and and um the more turns you get on that money the better off you are well when you're doing those you know when a, when a blackjack bet wins it's not like you give the customer a receipt <laughs> you, mm -hmm. you, you, know, you pay them and, and, and get the next two cards out um and, and when you have that and you're dealing like i was you know i've been at school all day i'm in the middle of the night you know you got five people and they're, they're drunk they're blowing cigarettes smoke in your face you know mistakes are made and, and, and regulators don't get that you know the, the mistakes are made and so they'll see a mistake and they just assume that this, you know, you're doing something wrong. That's just one little example that they don't understand. I always laugh um, because you can have regulators going to a casino and, and they'll notice that the ATM doesn't have the 800 number for problem gambling on it, which it should. I'm not diddling that. There can be a huge pass posting operation or, you know, <laughs> Dob deck or something, they wouldn't have any idea what it was. You know, you, I mean, you use the expression full deck, they're not going to know what you're talking about. You know? Yeah. And, and that's the problem. Double that in spades for sports betting. Nobody in the regulatory area here in the United States has any real experience in sports betting other than some people in Nevada. That's just the way it is. And, and two, these entities or these uh, jurisdictions are being forced to stand these up these these new verticals like sports betting very quickly you know we've got to get in the market we want to beat it get into the nfl season come on rush 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 and to take regulators that have no earthly idea and the model is in the united states with states rights is you copy someone else's regulations you may add some variance based on what the lobbyists say or some expert that, that is 90 day wonder that's you know who knows that says well you you want to do this um and then you have these rulemaking processes so you're copying each other but then you're also going through your own evolutionary ch change and so you end up with all these jurisdictions that have different rules no one knows why that rule makes sense or doesn't make sense and you have a lot of regulators that don't have a hint i, I mean you just they just don't you know, and, and when you look at some of the things that have gone wrong, they don't even know that the things that have gone wrong. I mean, if I was going to take anybody down, my goodness, the regulators just don't understand it. And, and it's, they're going to think I'm being mean to them. You can't get this business in, in 80 days. <laughs> you, yeah. you know, study this, study these regs and make sure everything's done. And, um, yeah, you know, I mean, it's just like even in the area of integrity, I, I just am amazed at the integrity issues I, I hear. First of all, integrity is not going to be handled very well at the state level. 
like in a sports betting scandal in California, what are you going to do? You're going to call your gaming control board and say, I think there's something wrong in California and the, and the Nevada gaming control board is going to run over to California and get a wire. <laughs> it's not going to happen that way. You know, yeah. we can't leave the state. So <laughs> it, it, is the, you know, is the integrity uh, division of this regulation, you know, is it, is it, is it a joke or what do you think you know like is it i think that what i've seen in integrity is it's like a public relations effort you know mm. let's say a lot of people that don't know anything about sports gambling will communicate with each other <laughs> you know mm. about things that that seem to be weird you know yeah. look because of our importance at the stardust in particular we would have times where we didn't know what was going on. And, and this goes back, Spanky, to that notion of we had people that had been behind that counter taking bets for 10 years, okay? And, and so I trusted their instincts. You know, they just didn't fabricate drama, you, you know? And they'd go, and, and Scott would call me down, we'd start talking, you know, we don't know what's going on, but it doesn't make sense. And maybe it's just, it does, you know, not everything needs to make sense. But every now and then, and then we'd start talking to other people. We may talk to a Roxy type, or we may talk to, you know, some of our betters, um, some of our sharps, and and um, and and we and we think, you know, we just don't feel comfortable here. And we call the board, the gaming control board, and let them know. But who we wanted to call was the FBI, and the reason we wanted to call the FBI because they were about the only people that could do anything about it. One, they can wiretap. Two, they work closely with the Treasury Department and FinCEN, not, not at that time, but they just work close with a number of different agencies. A lot of times, you know, you, you, someone just doesn't say, I'm going to try and um, save points off a college football, baseball game or some or basketball game. Normally, they've got other things going on. It may be, you know a whole variety of things, money laundering, drug stuff. So the FBI may already be watching these characters. Mm. And you see that now. Most of your betting, you know, when you hear so three guys arrested in Chicago for betting, it's not like they're out there busting bookies, because as you well understand, there's bookies all over the U.S., you know. Of course. There's bookies in Vegas. Yeah. You know? uh, but it, normally there's something else going on. There's a money laundering thing. There was a bribery thing. They were paying someone off. It, you know, there, there's something else. And so the, the betting thing was a derivative investigation. But, but if you can't begin to swear people in, if you can't tap their phones like that, if there's not ongoing uh, investigations, you, you know, you're really a dog when it comes to trying to close down any of these um, cheating scandals. And then, and then there's just little things. Like one of the things that's not talked about now, and this is, is, is the control of information. And I'm not talking about the old thing where, you know, a trainer says, oh, by the way, so-and-so's got a bad ankle or, you know, nothing silly like that or kind of from the movies. But we always had to work, watch our employees because we were, again, a book is a, <laughs> is a place where data <laughs> is traveling back and forth at a very rapid rate. And they may, you know, they knew who the sharks were, you know, and we had phone accounts and we would know that we had phone accounts that were really on top of us, you know, and we continued to book it because again, we needed to be in the center of the data and we didn't want to eliminate some data trails. 
but your employees learn learn that too. And so, you know, <laughs> you know, we kind of keep an eye on our employees. And if you saw someone drifting over to the Riviera or something like that, that became an issue. And that's really an issue now with mobile devices because, you know, I mean, it, it books, they know who you are, Spanky, and, and they're not going to take the worst. You know you don't take the worst of it. You don't try to take the worst of it. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> and, and, and so they're just going to mirror bet you as much as they can. And, 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 I, and I don't hear anybody talking about that now, you know, and, and they sure should be, <laughs> you, you know. Yeah, Because that touches on the integrity of the sport and of the integrity of the operation. Because if you – you know, you keep those databases, and now it's all account-based, and, you know, a lot of it's account-based. And, uh, and if those people are using that to, um, as an information source to enhance themselves personally, that's a problem. You know? What do you feel about the, you know, the, the affiliate noise in, in, in today's market? Um, well, I, I'm, I was not a, used to the affiliate model, and I grew up, in, with the Nevada model. And the Nevada model was where you, you had really kind of five components. And the first and foremost was suitability. And suitability, and, and there's other things like game integrity and appropriate accounting and internal controls and protections for the vulnerable and stuff like that. But suitability was important for two reasons. Uh, one was the evolution of the Nevada Gaming Control Board model came out of a mob. They were trying to get rid of a mob. And, and that's why they, they went through this suitability thing because that mob was a bad image for the industry because it was bringing heat from Washington and J. Edgar Hoover and all those guys, Kefauver and whatnot. So they wanted to clean it up. And so they wanted to make sure that the persons were suitable. So they do these background investigations. The other thing back in the old days is so many of your transactions were unaudit. They were difficult to audit. I was talking about when a blackjack, when you win a $50 blackjack, that who records that? Well, the best recording, you may have surveillance film of it, but that's it. You know, you just don't have any receipts. And you can't name many businesses where you can't go reconstruct every transaction by the receipts. You know, if, if I have a warehouse and moving, you, you know, paper always flows with things. Not in blackjack because it'd slow it down or dice. Now we're getting a, a, away from that. But that was the other important thing about suitability. And, this, and, and that was... You could try. I used to get on the phone in the morning on my way up to the Stardust, say, and I'd say, How we, how did we do last night? And he goes, we, Well, we lost $70,000. And I'd say, Well, who, who'd we lose it to? And the guy would go, His, his name was Tom. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, and I might be able to go up there and talk to some people and sift through the surveillance, you, you know, and, and, and whatnot. But, you know, there, there was a lot of trust there, but what we found with why we emphasize suitability so much is, is if the person had a clean background, looking back, he was more likely, the probability was higher that he wasn't going to change that behavior. Whereas if he had had, you know, five major screw ups that involved integrity, you know, he's an odds on favorite to have an integrity issue. So, so that's important. And what I have always belonged believed in really strong licensing for the affiliates. And the reason are is they are the face of the industry to the public often. They create the image. And, and if they start doing crazy stuff and promising things that can't be delivered and all that, that damages your image of the industry and why that's important is 
that damages the sustainability of the industry. So I always thought the, uh, there should be strict rules on the affiliates and they should go through some strong background things. And if they screw up, they should be slapped. You know? Well said. No, I can't, can't, can't agree more, actually. But boy, that's not, <laughs> I really piss off affiliates when I start talking like that, you know, I mean, especially, you know, across the pond. Yeah, well, you know, like you said, they're the face, and, and if, if they're going to earn, they have to be able to justify their earn. And, and um, I can't, you know, it, it makes sense for them to have to go through uh, the, the rigmarole to make sure that they're vetted uh, properly. And I get why, you know, they don't want to. It's expensive, you know, and, and that's yeah. restrict entry. I mean, one of the mo most interesting things, and I'm a student of regulation. I mean, I spent five and a half years in the econ program, and, and I wrote on regulation, and, and I'm interested in regulation. Uh, and I continue to write on regulation and speak on it around the world. But um, regulation can slow down innovation, you, you know. And if you look at what happened with sports betting, the big behemoths, you know, the Caesars of the world and the, and the MGMs of the world and the winds of the world, you know, they just were caught totally flat-footed and outrun by the, DF, uh, the DFS guys, you know, the DraftKings and FanDuel. One, <laughs> the big companies are kind of like the, the proverbial aircraft carrier, and it's just hard to to turn those beasts in any reasonable amount of time. Whereas the, the DFS guys were, um, they were like speedboats and they could just zip around real quickly and were very nimble. And, and I think a lot of that was they had the you know, draft kings and FanDuel guys don't have much fear of regulation. It, it appears by the way they act. And, and so far that's working out for them. Whereas the, the traditional Nevada based industry you know, really was careful about how they navigated those waters because of the, they didn't want to get sideways with the regulators. Um, yeah. Perfect example of that. I think there's still some places in Nevada that you can't post up. You have in order to open up an online account, you have to do it in person still. That's or right. You, yeah, you no, I think that's still the case. You know? Yeah. I think stations casino is really the strong lobbyist for that. You know, the locals join and, and which is kind of another funny thing, you know, I'm, and I was really thinking about this with all the money that uh, was just the uh, circa that was just opened out there. You can sit in this wonderful book and and uh, bet at stations or wherever you got the best line, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Which is, I mean, that's a funny thing, and and I still haven't got my head around that, you know. Well, yeah, when my when my runners, you know, you know, early two thousands, you know, there was a time where. You know, if you had a cell phone or, or a laptop computer or anything like that in a, in a sports book, you know, a big alarm would go off. Guys would escort you out and hold you. Now, you know, the, you know, in the last tech 10 years, they welcome it. They don't care. They just, you know, the, the guys that are moving the numbers have computers. Why shouldn't the customers have? So um, yeah, they have a smartphone. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So it just it's just changed. Um, it's, 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 you know, what I think about is it, I always wonder what would happen if I went into, let, let's say an Atlantic city casino, let's say I went into, um, you know, Harris and sat down on a roulette game and took out my cell phone and started playing on their iGaming platform roulette. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and, and they'd say, well, you, are you going to make a bet? And I say, I am. Look, see, I'm logged on to your website. Yeah. I'm playing roulette right now. Why don't you have them bring me a drink? <laughs> you know they probably say no you can't sit here you know 
that's going to happen in the books. And that's, I'm, I'm wondering how that affects what books look like. Because if you look at, you know, the old Hilton book, which is, um, you know, gone through a number of different editions and the Stardust book and some of the, you know, the Caesar's book, the, those were big dramatic presentations, but now you don't even need to go there, you know. Absolutely. So Richard, you know, the name of the podcast is called Be Better Betters, and you've seen um, the highs and lows of gamblers throughout your career, and you've seen, you know, you, you must have, the stories you have must be endless, but, you know, if there's some advice you could give to, you know, sports betters that are just coming up in the business or somebody that's trying to maybe lose a little less or maybe, you know, make an earn out of this, if there's one bit of advice, what would you give them? Well... You, you know, I don't know how I'd answer that. You, 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 you know, I would suggest that they, um, you know, they keep their day job. You, you know, <laughs> I, always, I always laugh. You know, I, I have a surefire way to make a small fortune in the betting business, and that's that you start with a large fortune. You know, I, I've seen gambling take a lot of pe- people down. Um, and, 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 and I really can't... I tell you, I do have a, a opinion about how you enter the industry. You know, if you want to be a consultant, if you want to work in a book and, and, and all that stuff, you know, I'm sure, not, I'd love to hear that. I get contacted a lot of times, you know, yeah, I, I'm really good at marketing. I want to get involved in sports betting or I'm really good at public, really, you know, these, you know, college educated types. And I, and I give them all the same, go work in a book, go work in a book for two years learn the damn business <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know? um, and, 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 and that's the advice I, this, this isn't something the gambling business you can understand in a lot of different ways you can understand it mathematically and from probability and statistics and look at the sociology of it and all that but there's just nothing like getting your hands dirty and, and, and working in these joints. You know, that's how you learn this business. You know, and I'm not saying you have to go do that for 30 years before you know anything, which was the old model, you know, <laughs> but, but, you know, go work for a couple of years in a book and then you'll be valuable to someone like me, you, you know, because I don't want to have to teach you the business, you know, you know before you start marketing or, or, or supervising people and stuff like that. So, you know, anybody that's interested in entering the sports business, and I'm not talking about from your side as a player, because I, I just don't know enough to talk about that, Spanky. And I, and I, you know, as much as I like to hear myself talk and think I'm smart, I, I just don't know what I'd say. But if you want to learn the gambling business, get in the gambling business. We have so many people, especially in sports betting now, that have no earthly idea about the business. They don't understand the culture. They don't understand the traditions. They don't understand how it works, <laughs> you know, and, yeah. and, I, and I think that's just unfortunate, you know, and I think we're going to pay a price for that. You know? No, that's, that's the great advice, Richard. I love it. It's, 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 it's what you did. Smart people, you, you know, I mean, and let me tell you, um, you, you know, make Roxy Roxborough was probably one of the smartest people I met in the gambling business. You know, I, 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 he was, I met him in about 1986, you know, and really got to know him in, in, uh, in, uh, when I was at the Stardust, you know, because I'd stare right at his eyes, you know, I wanted to know, <laughs> I wanted no bullshit information, you know, and, uh, and uh, but, you know, Roxy couldn't make it on the other side, you, you, you know, 
I always make the joke that people say, Roxy's one of the smartest guys in the world in sports betting. Well, he is. But you know what? I never flew anywhere in Roxy's jet. And the reason I never flew anywhere in Roxy's jet is because he didn't have one. I flew a number of different places in Billy Walter's jet, you know. Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. so, so you, you know, but even a smart guy like Roxy that just lived this day in and day out, you, you know, he, he made a lot more money on the other side, you know. Yeah. You know that. And, yeah. and, and if anybody thinks I'm bad rapping Roxy now, they're out of their mind. I have enormous respect for him. But that's how tough this business is. You've seen probably, you know, have you seen somebody go from, you know, you've seen, have you, that's, that's a just rhetorical question, but have you, like, can you describe like a, a richest to rag story? Does it ever, you know, I guess you become immune to the story where you see someone lose it all. Like, did, did you wind up getting immune to seeing that? Um, because it must like, you know, I'm just trying to think if I was in your position, you know, just to see somebody on top of it all and then just lose it all gambling. Um, it, you know, it, it's tough. You know what I mean? Sure. You want your company to succeed, but at the same time, it's tough to just see a human being go through that. Yeah, it is. You know, I mean, and look, we, we would pursue legal action to recover our, our credit. You know, we would put liens on people's property, you know, and, and, um, and, and it, and it is hard, you know, and, and a lot of these people, I mean, you work in the casino business and, and you have a customer, a lot of those customers are going to have a loss, last bet, you know, and, and, and I was always in the thick of it because I was making the big credit decisions. And, and you kind of know that one of those is eventually going to go bad and you try not to exacerbate that. But, th- but then, you know, credit became a competitive dimension of the industry. You know, as, mm-hmm. as Vegas grew, they might have a, a credit line at the Sands and then the Sands guys move over to another casino, the Desert Inn. And so that customer goes for the Desert Inn and they get him a credit line over there too. So he's got a $25,000 line, which he can handle at the Sands. And now he's gone to the Desert Inn. He's got another 25. And then they get him over to the Hilton sometime. And he's got another 25. So a guy's got in Vegas, he's got three or four lines, credit lines of 25,000. Now he's a $25,000 a year player, but he gets drunk and gets in a cab. He can blow a thousand, I mean, a hundred thousand, you know, and, and, We've wrecked him, and, and, and I, you know, at three in the morning, and that's when I got involved in a lot of credit decisions. You know, I might give him, an, a, you know, say a fifty thousand dollar player, I might give him five or ten more, you know, but then I'm going to cut him off, and he's going to tell me he hates me. He's going to tell me he's never coming back and stuff like that. But I'm not going to burn him out. But once that's all done, we've gone after to seek judgments on people's property to get our money back. Because you know what, if they pulled up to our cage, we were going to give them cash for their chips. Oh no, of course. <laughs> no, 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 there's no, that's, that's, that's business is business. I'm just, it, it was, yeah, it was, it was hard sometimes. And I always tried to be careful about credit decisions because I didn't want, the, I didn't want to be the guy that, that took him off that edge, you know? Did you, did, cause did casino operators compare notes with each other on, Hey, yeah, we had a, we had systems that would allow us to do that, and, and unfortunately, the industry didn't want to use that system as much as they should have because they didn't want people to know that somebody was in town. I mean, here's how it worked in the old days: like like a guy would come in, there was a twenty-five line, and, and let's say over a weekend, and let's say he lost it, and I gave him five more, okay, and he and he lost that, and he wanted more. And, and I'd say, Here, here's what I'll do. I'll give you a thousand, what we called walking around money, because you don't want to be stuck in 
Vegas where you can't tip a maitre d or a limo driver or something like that. But but you're done. But then I might go to my office and I knew that this guy also played at the Hilton. And I might call Lee Skelly over there and I say, Lee, listen, so-and-so's in town and I've taken him to 30 and I, I gave him a thousand walking around. But but he's working, he's on a run and I, my guess is he's coming in your direction because, you, you know, because Lee used to work, say, with me at another place or something. And and we would communicate like that, and the town worked pretty good. But then it just got so competitive that those systems didn't work so good anymore because people weren't communicating. They didn't want them to know in. They would lie to you and stuff like that. You know? Wow. It's cutthroat. It's cutthroat business. Yep. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. Thank you so much, Richard, for coming on. I really appreciate, brother, you taking the time. You've been you've gone done so much in this business. And um, it's just unbelievable for you uh, to share some of these stories. I, I love to bring you on another time to maybe go into some more stories because you, you must have so many to share. And, and uh, it's just fascinating to hear it, uh, how things went down and, and, and your perspective on the industry. So I really appreciate you coming on, Richard. Well, it was a pleasure. I, I, one, my, I get people mention my stories a lot, and, and I can assure you they're getting better as more of my fact checkers die. And I've got, about, <laughs> I've got two or three more guys that got to die. And I'm going to, rather than being at a meeting, I will have been the guy that made the decision. <laughs> I love it. But, I love uh, it. Uh, look, it, it's a pleasure. I, you know, I've tried to retire in this industry twice, Spanky, and it didn't take, you know. And so I just know now that I'm going to be carried out in the body bag, you know. <laughs> That's what they do in this business. You can't <laughs> leave it. You never could leave it. You know, I, I just, I have concerns about the industry right now. You know, there's there's just a bad vibe about it. And, and I think we're moving too fast. I think we're moving too fast with people that don't know what they're doing. I think that, and, and, and it's not like I'm at anti-gambling. Gambling's been great. It's made my life. It's allowed me to travel the world and have great things. But I want gambling to be sustainable. And I think a lot of these guys are just in such a rush for the dollars that they're, that they're going to create images and, and uh, optics in the industry that aren't good for sustainability. That's my concern. 100%. I think, you know, the greatest, I, I remember, you know, you saying that it's better to do it right than to do it quickly. And I think that the... Uh, mm -hmm. People are just just going a little bit too fast, just trying to rush to market, and um, and obviously the, the, you know the product suffers as a whole because of that. Yeah, I think I mean, and regulation is changing too. You know, you, you know the the a lot. Of, you know, I wrote a I've used a tweet lately is the the gold has become more important than the standard. You know, because they're almost saying they were the gold standard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, some of these regulatory agencies are acting more like marketing entities for their states than they are for as regulatory agencies, in my opinion. And 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 that's gonna that's a trap that's gonna bite back. And there's some stuff going on right now, and you know what it is. Yeah. Oh yeah. Ugly. Potentially ugly. I'm not saying it's ugly because I don't have all the facts, but it's potentially ugly. Oh yeah, and it won't be the first. It won't be the last. I should say. Sorry, it won't be the last. Yeah. Okay, Richard. Thanks again. I really appreciate it, my friend. Okay, no. bye, buddy. Take care now. That was Richard Schutz. What a great, great guy. Newest stuff. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you guys learned as much as I did. His stories are great. He's been around from a dealer to a CEO to a regulator. He really, really knows his stuff. I really, really enjoyed that interview, and I hope you guys liked it as well. Thanks so much for the time. Until next time.